Christian author and speaker Gordon MacDonald said, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses or to feed the hungry or to heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. God does, and he does so through us, his people, his church. And when we fail to offer or to live out of that grace, someone is going to get hurt because, as MacDonald points out, there's nowhere else for people to turn. So when Peter and Barnabas started pulling away from non-Jewish believers in Antioch, acting contrary to grace and talking about the love of God, but then refusing to eat with people who weren't like them, people and the cause of Christ started being hurt. So Paul was compelled to confront them with their duplicity, which is the passage we looked at last week in Galatians chapter 2. The passage we're looking at this morning continues on in verse 15 of chapter 2, where Paul, which contains the argument Paul used, and it contains the essence of his message. Beginning in verse 15, Scripture says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. For I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing." Near the end of Charles Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol, there's a scene where Scrooge finally stops. It takes a crisis to get his attention, brought to the edge of his own grave by the spirit of Christmas future. But he does stop, and through no effort of his own, he's transformed and he is set free. He's a new man. He wakes up Christmas Day, and for the first time in many years, he's brimming with joy and excitement, anxious to share in this celebration with generosity, and he spends the whole day blessing and giving. Then comes the morning after Christmas, and that familiar scene of him back in his office, hunched over his books like a vulture. Two days earlier, Scrooge had reluctantly allowed his poor, haggard employee, Bob Cratchit, to take Christmas Day off, but it was with the demand that Cratchit come in all the earlier the day after. Cratchit comes in 18 minutes late. He's flustered, nervous, and quickly settles into his desk, hoping Scrooge won't notice, but he does notice. Mr. Cratchit! Scrooge's stern, hard voice booms from the shadows. Cratchit answers in a quivering voice, Yes, sir. 
knowing and fearing what is about to happen. What do you mean by coming in here at this time of day? Cratchit starts to apologize, to explain, but he's cut off. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer, Scrooge says. You leave me no choice but to raise your salary. And most unexpectedly of all at that point, Scrooge starts to giggle. A Merry Christmas, Bob, says Scrooge with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he claps Mr. Cratchit on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. And I want you to let me to help your struggling family. Let us discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of punch. Cratchit stands there agog. His old, has his old boss gone mad? Is this some sort of trick? But he realizes that Scrooge means it, and he gets caught up in his master's joy. Imagine if he weren't. Imagine if instead Cratchit begins to resent Scrooge's generosity. Imagine that, and you've captured the absurdity of failing to live out or offer God's grace to others. Because that's what it is. It's absurd. You leave me no choice, God tells us, but to raise your salary. Now come, let's go celebrate and enjoy ourselves. It's a gift, and yet then we want to pay for it. Or to work for it, or to earn it, or to withhold it from others who may not be like us, or do things the way we think they should be done. That's what was happening in Antioch, what Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish believers were doing. Saved by grace, they were now trying to withhold it from others and to earn it for themselves through creeping the requirements of the law. Pastor, professor, counselor David Siemens once said, many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. He goes on to say, we read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. But the good news of grace has not penetrated to the level of our own emotions and lives. This morning I make an assumption, one that I make every week when we gather for worship, and that assumption that we are here because we want to get to know God and experience His grace in a more full way. The question is always how. Some may spend their entire lives fighting against the current of sin and human nature, trying to make themselves acceptable to God only to discover they're no closer to Him than when they first began. Others use tremendous amount of time and energy, trying and trying, jumping one hurdle after another, doing everything they can think of to make God accept them, but they're only going in circles. And others, through a variety of self-help books and positive mental attitudes and good deeds, try to take one step at a time, working away at the problem, never realizing they're really not going anywhere. In our struggle, God may seem harsh. He may seem resistant and not accepting anything we do as sufficient to make us right with Him. 
But that's simply because we're seeking to do it on our terms, not his. We say it all the time. There's nothing we can or ever will be able to do to make us right with God. That's the gospel. That's the reason Jesus came, was crucified, dead and buried, and rose on the third day. Because we cannot do it on our own. We needed help. As verse 21 in Galatians 2 said, If righteousness could be gained in any other way, if it can be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But what we're unable to do on our own, God does for us, and that's grace. It's essential that we reach the point we realize we have no other choices. We accept that we cannot do it on our own and cry out to God, I need your help. That's when grace begins to take over, when faith is born. Because it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we truly come to be the beginning of God. No one, Paul says, is justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If you were to choose just one verse in all the book of Galatians to sum up Paul's basic message, that's it. Verse 16. It's all about how do we become right with God? And the key word he uses three times just in that one verse is justified or justification. Often it's translated righteous or righteousness. It has a variety of uses. It means to be straight or to be upright. Originally it meant to show or give right direction, the right way to go. Legally, it meant to be accepted or acquitted or pardoned, to be saved despite our crimes. In printing, a line is said to be justified when it's correctly spaced and has the correct length. A wall is said to be justified if it conforms to a plumb line, if it's straight and not crooked. So it came to mean a norm or a standard to follow in order to be right. And How much effort we spend trying to justify ourselves to show that we are right. A child tries to explain to their parents why they didn't clean their room when they were told to, and instead they went outside and played. A teenager comes up with good reasons why they came home two hours late. A young single person tries to get their parents to understand why they need to move out on their own. A husband gives reason why he doesn't have time to spend with his family because he has to work late. A wife wants her husband to understand why she couldn't pass up that great deal. The tendency carries over in all of our lives. We try to give reasons why we are right. And it carries over to our relationship with God and understanding from Him as we look for and work for reasons He should accept us. And yet, Paul says to be right with God, to or justified, when we conform to His standard or will, is when we give up trying. For Paul and for us, the issue is what God's standard is, how to conform to that. Many answers are given to offering sacrifices, obeying rules, spending hours alone in meditation, seeking enlightenment. The answers may be endless, but they're meaningless because when you boil them all down, the core essence of them all is what do I do to make me right and acceptable? 
It's like getting ready for a date. You can spend hours in preparation, choosing just the right clothing, acting in certain way to impress that other person, showing just the positive side of your life, trying to convince them that you are the right choice. And Paul says time and again, man is not justified. We're not made right by observing, by doing, by earning, because we'll never be good enough. We always cross the line or fall short or miss the mark or whatever definition of sin you want to use. How much of our time is spent trying to convince God? You know, it's like we that picture. We try to picture God justification as that scale with all our good on one side and our bad on the other, hoping the good outweighs the bad. But again, verse 21 says, if salvation can be had in any way other than Christ's death, it's not for nothing. It's not walking an aisle or saying a prayer or joining a church or being baptized that are critical. Those can become works in themselves, doing things. Rather, justification is about accepting grace. Accepting what God has already done for you. Responding to him. It's not what you do, but who you are that God cares about. Dr. James Kennedy, who for many years was pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, wrote the well-used training called Evangelism Explosion was all built around one essential question. And most of us have probably heard it. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That I prayed a prayer? That I went to church? That I walked an aisle? That I didn't hurt anyone? On what basis do we claim to be God's children or citizens of heaven? There doesn't need to be uncertainty. Salvation isn't followed by a question mark. In 1 John 5, the apostle wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you may have confidence that you have eternal life. You know, it's like your child. What did they have to do to make you love them? There may be times... Through their choices and lifestyle, a child may become estranged from their parents. They may, it may break their parents' heart, but it doesn't lessen our love. God's no different. We may be estranged from him, living in rebellion, but he still says, I love you with an everlasting love. The point of the cross is Jesus came so we don't have to try to persuade God. We don't have to do anything at all except to accept the love he has for us. That's why it's called good news. Good news is something you receive, you don't earn. Justification, Paul says, is by grace, it's not by law. Because it is only grace that allows us to say along with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's grace that makes our faith possible. Being a Christian is not so much about what we believe, but who we become. For me to live, Paul tells the Philippians, is Christ. Therefore, it's not what we do, but what we are that saves us. Faith is about faith, trust, and surrender. Putting our life for time and eternity in the hands of another. 
Someone has described it as a personal attachment. It's like putting a bumper sticker on a car. They become attached. If we're justified or made right by faith, Paul still had to deal, though, with the issue of sin. What do you do about it? His detractors were saying, if you do away with the law, there's no basis for morality. Without the law to guide, people will do whatever they want, and it doesn't matter because God's going to forgive them in the end. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace, a poor imitation or a knockoff. If that were so, then it could be said that Christ actually promotes sin, is what verse 17 says. But that comes from the wrong understanding of the nature of grace. True grace, God's grace, is life-transforming. It enables us to live for God, not out of fear or uncertainty, but with confidence and joy. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Which is why Paul could say, work out your salvation. And Peter could say, make every effort to add to your faith things like goodness and knowledge and perseverance and godliness. Writer Gary Thomas said, when my belief does not affect the way I speak or the way I care or the way I love, then it's not God's fault, it's mine. I'm refusing to be crucified with Christ, to attach myself to him and insisting on my own way. And at that point, Paul says the law becomes ineffective. It's like putting up a sign. It tells you what to do, but offers no help in how to do it. You know, we live on Keolu Drive, and on our street, the entrance of our street from Kalaniani Highway to Keolu, there's a yield sign. If you're coming from the right, you're supposed to yield to the traffic turning left. But most people seem to ignore it. So recently the city restriped the lines and they moved the sign to make it even more obvious. Yield for those who are making a left turn. Every day it seems when I go home to make a left turn, I end up having to slow down and watch out for those refusing to yield. The sign's been put up. People know what to do. They simply choose to ignore it. Because the sign's powerless to change driving habits. The law, Paul said, is just like that. You can put up the sign, you can make the rule, but it doesn't mean anyone's going to listen. Grace doesn't just post a sign. It gives power to know and to do what is right. It's like giving the keys to Christ and letting him become the driver. One writer said, the law becomes like a mirror. It shows us our flaws and reveals our sins, but it cannot remove them. Only Christ does that. The law tries to deny sin, keep us from being sinners, but grace says you are sinners. That's why Christ comes. Justification works the opposite. It works from the inside. In Galatians 6, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. Only a new creation matters. That change Right living is not a condition for being right with God. It comes as a result of it. So we don't get our lives straight to be forgiven. We're forgiven, and Christ begins to straighten us out. Again, Thomas says, if our life is not being transformed, there's something wrong. If we're not becoming less selfish or less greedy or more loving or patient and giving, then something is wrong because Christ comes to live in us, and those are his characteristics. 
The result of grace is we become like him. Being right with God, then, is at one time the easiest thing in the world. So easy, in fact, Romans says it's foolishness to the world. But it's also the hardest because we're attaching ourselves to a person to be so identified with him that it's like being crucified with him, Paul says. We can try as hard as we can to make God's presence a reality, but it only wears us out. We need to reach the place where we realize we can't make it without help. A woman I read described it like when she and her husband had gone to the beach and her husband got caught in an undertow. And he got drifting further and further away from the shore, unable to overcome that undertow. Finally, all he could do was to throw up his hands and wave and cry out for help to the lifeguards. He could not save himself, but they could. And it was at that point rescue came. The raising of his hands, she said, and the crying out demonstrated he had no power to save himself. He acknowledged his need of rescue and his hope that the lifeguards could save him. Faith, she says, in the blood of Christ is like raising our hands and crying out. It's declaring that we are sinners and need a saving, that we have no power in ourselves to save ourselves, and to acknowledge that Christ's death on Calvary is sufficient to save. Again, the question Dr. Kennedy asked is a good one. Good one to close with, really. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? <laughs>